Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Back in 1962, sociologist and political activist Michael Harrington published a book entitled The Other America. It was a deep and prescient look at poverty in America. In it, he argued that a full 25% of Americans were living in poverty. The book had a profound impact on both Jack and Bobby Kennedy, and some said it was responsible for Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. 41 years later, in 2003, John Edwards spoke of two Americas, a nation divided by race and by poverty. And today, a full 58 years after Harrington's look at poverty, the homeless crisis is worse than ever. The streets of cities large and small are living evidence. The opioid and drug crisis has hollowed out large parts of the country. And the latest proposed federal budget reaches new heights in cutting social safety net programs on a federal level. It's hard to imagine that there's hope for the country or for those left behind. This is the world that Pulitzer Prize winning authors Nick Kristof and Cheryl Wu Dunn look at through a very personal lens in their latest work, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. Nicholas Kristof is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, where he served as bureau chief in Hong Kong, Beijing, and Tokyo, and won a Pulitzer Prize for his columns on Darfur. Kristof and Cheryl Wu Dunn are the authors of five previous books, Together, they were awarded a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of China, and their previous books include the bestsellers Half the Sky and A Path Appears. It is my pleasure to welcome Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn here to talk about Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. Nick, Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Jeff, we're delighted to join you. Well, it's great to have you here. Nick, I want to begin with you. This is really told through the lens of your hometown back in Yamhill, Oregon, that you went back to, to find a pretty depressing scene, a far cry from uh, the community that you grew up in. Talk about that first. That's right. So Yamhill, I mean, I like to think of it as God's country. Uh, I had a you know, wonderful childhood. Uh, for a long time, it really seemed to represent upper mobility, and um, a lot of families have done very, very well for much of the 20th century. Uh, it's a population of about 1,000. Uh, the beginning of the coastal range, the, uh, a lot of people are employed in agriculture, timber, and light manufacturing. Um, my mom is still on the family farm there. And Cheryl and I would be reporting around the world, and then we'd go back to Yam Hill to see old friends, and we we, you know, it was kind of hard to process what we saw. We, uh, there were a lot of people um, dying from drugs, from alcohol, um, suicide. We, a quarter of the kids on my old number six school bus have now passed away from, you know, from drugs and alcohol, suicide and, and related pathologies. And we gradually came to see that this wasn't a problem of one bus or one small town, but a great social depression that is afflicting much of America and indeed has brought down life expectancy for three of the last four years. There's lots that you talk about in the book, in Tightrope, about how to address this and our ability to address this. How important is it, Cheryl, to understand the causes of this in order to begin to address it? To what extent do we have to be reductive about trying to understand what happened? I think it's really important for us to understand um, certainly as many of the causes as we can. Uh, for instance, uh, when we think that, uh, you know, people who are engaged in drugs may be addicted to drugs and they carry a bag of heroin uh, from New York to Alabama as one of the people in our 
a book we described, Jeeva Cooley did, uh, they just said, okay, she's dangerous, um, even though this is a nonviolent uh, crime, they put her in jail for 999 years. Well, what she really needs is um, um, something more like treatment, uh, if that's the case, if she's her addiction is overwhelming her. And, and with many others who were uh, incarcerated because uh, they were small-time drug users, uh, what they really need if the underlying reason for them committing the crime is uh, drug treatment. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're really comparing who are the uh, criminals, um, if you look at the pharmaceutical companies that basically got far more people addicted to opioids, um, that's another area to look Nick, talk a little bit about what it was like for you seeing these people, the, the, really a sense almost of survivor's guilt in, in seeing what had happened to this town. It, it is. That's exactly what it is. Um, you know, the, the kids who got on the school bus uh, right after me were the five nap kids, and they were smart and talented. Uh, Farland was my year. The others were younger, uh, Zelan, uh, Nathan, Keelan, and Regina. And uh, Farlan is dead after of liver disease after years of alcohol and drug abuse. Zelan died in a house fire when he was passed out drunk. Uh, Nathan blew himself up cooking meth. And Regina died from hepatitis after in, using injectable drugs. And the only survivor uh, was Keelan, the youngest who survived because he spent 13 years in the state penitentiary. And, you know, trying to understand how their house went through this inferno and mine did not. And what could have been done by the school, by the community to lead to different Results. That's kind of the mission of, of of tightrope. And in many ways, though, we are more siloed than ever in the way we look at this. And there has been this mantra for so long that that you talk about that these people just made bad choices that they needed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, of course, um, we do believe that people are responsible for their actions. I mean, you know, uh, definitely people. Uh, you know, need to uh, account for the fact that if they don't graduate for from high school, uh, they're just not going to get as good a job as if they did graduate from high school. And if they start using drugs, they're going to go down a path that makes it much more difficult for them to maintain a job and, and raise a raise a good family than if they didn't start drug use. Uh, so definitely, there are some issues there. But you also have to realize that there are times when we need to give people second and third chances. Uh, you know, not everybody is perfect, and if they make a mistake, they need a nudge or they need some help to, to lift themselves, lift them up. And that's where we think that it's much more important for us to uh, give them a hand up if uh, they have tr- problems. And one of the people that we talk about in, in the book, um, you know, he was homeless, uh, he was addicted to drugs, and we started interviewing him, and we asked him, you know, uh, you know, do you think that this is your fault? He goes, oh, it's absolutely my fault. I made a lot of bad decisions. And then we started asking his background. Well, uh, he was born with drugs in his system. Uh, he saw his brother shot when he was three years old, shot dead. Uh, he himself was, was shot in the head when he was five. Uh, he had lead poisoning. I mean, it was one after the other. And so you can understand why someone in this situation, yeah, he could use a, a, help, a little bit of help. Yeah, Jeff, let me just add that, you know, I think this bootstraps narrative has been so pernicious uh, because it has ended up being an excuse 
not to help people. And it's also been internalized, as Cheryl suggested, by a lot of people who are struggling themselves and has led to a sense of defeatism, to a uh, a, a collapse of self-esteem, a sense that they are failures. Um, and, you know, obviously, obviously bad choices are real and, and irresponsibility is a problem. But if we're going to have that conversation about personal irresponsibility, then we also have to have a conversation about our collective social responsibility, especially to kids. You know, when you can, when kids, when you can look at a, a child based on the zip code in which they're born and predict their outcomes 20 years later based on just that zip code, then you know that it's not because that infant is making bad choices, because society is. How pernicious is this idea of, of wanting to look back to an America gone by, looking at America of the 50s and 60s and somehow thinking that therein lies the answer? Nick? Um well, I mean, I think it's misleading because a lot of the, I mean, that golden time, um, it was a, uh, you know, it was a period of racial discrimination, a period when women were uh, not empowered. Um, but there is also something to be noted for the period roughly from 1945 through the 1970s when we had. Uh, rapid economic growth that was also quite fairly divided. The pie was growing, but also inequality was declining. And we also had investments in, uh, in, in physical capital and in human capital and interstate highways and state universities and, and community colleges that laid the groundwork for inclusive growth in the years ahead. So, you know, those are the parts that I'd like to uh, to revive that sense of inclusive growth of a capitalism that worked for everybody rather than the sort of blind nostalgia for uh, kind of a bootstraps era that, in fact, you know, did not exist. That This was the era of the GI Bill of Rights, which was all about helping people up, not about telling them to lift themselves up. And Cheryl, one of the other aspects of this is the way in which this we, we all pay a price for this, even those that, that don't live in these communities that may not interact, that there is a price in terms of competitiveness and success that the entire country pays. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, when women joined the workforce uh, in uh, the last, latter half of, of the last century, uh, we had a huge boom to the economy. And they started contributing to the GDP because they were underutilized, uh, you know, resource in the entire country. Likewise, we have a similar situation now where you have so many Americans who are just underutilized as a resource. If we can lift them up. Uh, we can actually create a much more uh, economic power. You know, if, especially if we're going to start competing with, with, and we are continuing to compete with China, which has 1.4 billion people, and uh, obviously India, which <laughs> will be even larger than that, they have huge amounts of people power. And uh, if we want to uh, get back to number one, uh, you know, or, or if you believe that we are number one, uh, we need to use as many of those uh, that people power as we can uh, by lifting Americans up so that they can be productive human beings. Right now, we have so many uh, less productive, uh, even unproductive uh, people in America, and they aren't able to contribute to the economy. 
Why are we not talking about this more in the political realm, Nick? Why do we we have lots of subjects that come up every week for debate and discussion among politicians, and yet things like housing programs and drugs and, and the state of the poor in rural America doesn't seem to work its way to the top of the food chain of discussion? I think it's because, in general, these issues don't get adequate attention, and part of the blame for that, I think, has to be laid at the feet of, of those of us in journalism. I, I don't think we've done an adequate job uh, covering this. Uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those were enormously important subjects, and they deserved that coverage. But it's also true that every two weeks, we in America lose as many people from drugs, alcohol, and suicide as were lost in 18 years of war in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think part of it is the, uh, the lack of attention and that if you're in the first class cabin in the U.S., you don't fully notice uh, what's going on below decks or, and you may not notice the, the hole in the hull that threatens the whole venture. Um, I, you know, I, I also think, frankly, that uh, post uh, President Trump's election, there have been a lot of uh, liberals who have completely given up on the white working class. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, the, the white working class tends to be socially conservative. And so on issues like abortion or guns, they're more likely to vote for or immigration, they're more likely to vote for Republicans. But on economic issues, they're actually more liberal. So if the issue is health care or is um, uh, raising the minimum wage or parental leave programs, then Democrats have a fighting chance to win over those votes. And I hope in this year, in the presidential race and in Senate races, I hope they, they make their case. One of the other aspects of this that, that really is so clear in the, in the things that you write about and the stories that you tell, particularly from, from Yamhill and other places, is the multi-generational aspect of this and how the problems layer upon each generation. Talk about that, Cheryl. Well, that's what's so critical is the next generation. And we forget that, you know, when we have people who are, are addicted to drugs and they have kids, what's going to happen to those kids? Right now, uh, one baby every 15 minutes is born with exposure to opioids in their, in their system. I mean, <laughs> how many babies do you think that, uh, uh, you know, who are in that situation are going to be growing up to be going to Ivy League institutions? Uh, what we need is to address uh, these kids when they're young. Uh, we need early childhood education. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, get those kids, uh, you know, um, address the tra challenges that they're facing if they are, are um, in the midst of what we call adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. Uh, when those ACEs start to pile up, those kids are in real danger with, during the time when their brain is expanding at its most rapid rate. Uh, we think of kids as totally resilient, but no, they actually are vulnerable, especially when they're young. And um, we uh, right now want to make sure that we can course correct their trajectory uh, when it's a lot more cost effective uh, than two decades later when they're they're either troubled uh, they're, they're tr troubled teenagers and troubled uh, you know uh, kids in their in their in their 20s who are, are going to you know uh, go down a really bad path even now we can actually predict uh, the outcomes of an infant based on the zip code that they're born in and so we know that when we can do that uh, we can certainly um, 
uh, we can certainly say that this is not the responsibility, the personal responsibility of those little babies. Yeah, talk about mobility and why so many of these people are, are so stuck in where they are. There was a time in this country where people left, moved around for jobs, moved around for opportunity. There seems to be such a tremendous lack of mobility today. So, you know, this, this is an issue that is debated, and I don't think we fully understand it, uh, why geographic mobility has declined. But I think that one issue uh, is the cost of housing, that the areas that tend to have more economic opportunity also have very expensive housing and require a certain amount of, uh, you know, cash up front to move to that that place. So that if you want to move to the Bay Area of California, then um, you may be able to find a job, but you're going to have to have, you know, several thousand dollars to, to go there and find a place. It's also true that um, various benefit programs are not very portable across state lines. Uh, and so people who are getting some kind of a some kind of support then find it uh, difficult and cumbersome to change states or if you're on Medicaid, for example. But um, I also think, frankly, it's kind of a lack of information and that people often aren't you know, don't fully appreciate what they can do and, and can get somewhere else or the opportunities for their their children. And there have been some programs that show just small nudges and telling people about greater opportunities uh, elsewhere actually have far-reaching results. And yet, Nick, you remain optimistic. I do. You know, look, these are enormous challenges. And, you know, it, it, the, it's obviously too late for many of the kids on my bus. But we have the toolkits to address these problems. We know how to uh, how to make a difference because, frankly, just about every other country in the world does it. You know, automation, globalization, these affect Canada and Germany, but you don't see life uh, span declining in those places. And it is so frustrating that we have the tools, but we can't seem to summon the political will. I hope that this election year will be a chance to shine more of a spotlight on these issues, not only on the problems, but also on the solutions. Nicholas Kristof, Cheryl Wu Dunn. The book is Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. Nick, Cheryl, I thank you both so much for spending time with us. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you.